Our scripture reading today is from John 14, 15 through 23. This is found on page 901 in your pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please take the one in front of you home as a gift from us. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even in the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, because I live, you also live. In that day, you know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks, Amy. Well, as we continue together uh, worshiping, let's pray right now. Let me pray for us as we look at this passage. Jesus, thank you that you have given us uh, another helper who has promised that you've promised will guide us into all truth. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, now that you would do that work, that we would be open to you doing that now. As we look at this passage, would you guide us into all truth? Uh, we have ears to hear and hearts and minds and hands that are quick to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Where does God live? Where does God live? If you ask that question to different people, you get different answers, right? If you ask a little kid, where does God li- live? They might say, they, they live in heaven. Uh, he lives in heaven. Um, if you ask Chief's kingdom right now, they might say that God lives in Harrison Buckner's foot. I don't know. Um, that might be their, their answer. But if you ask Jesus, where does God live? His answer is so stunning that we can hardly imagine how it can be true. And, and his answer is in verse 23 of this passage. It's actually all over this passage, but in verse 23, you see it so clearly. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And then look at this, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's Jesus's answer, uh, which is really different than any other religious teacher or religious answer to where does God live? And if you, again, put that question to different uh, belief systems that are out there, you're going to get different answers. If you ask someone who's kind of in the secular, progressive, Western cultural context in which we live, the answer is probably going to be something like, well, God is, he lives in our brains as a, as a figment of our imagination, something we've created, or as a social construct that, that different societies and cultures create in part of their kind of human evolution. If you ask someone else, uh, you might say that, that, that we are God, or that we are becoming God, or that, that nature is God, or that, that everything is God, and we're returning to uh, a union with all things that are God. But Jesus says, his answer is that one, God is real. He isn't something that's just a social concept. He, he is, exists and he is real. Uh, that he isn't us, that there's a creation and creator distinction. So that God is real, he exists, he's not us. 
And yet he has not just come to live near us, but he's actually come to live in us. That we are God's home. That we are God's home. And, and what does that mean to say that we are God's home? And I, I'm just going to tell you right from the beginning this morning that I can't fully explain what that means any more than I can fully explain the, the mystery of the Trinity and how God is both truly and fully and wonderfully one and yet is also three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what I can tell you this morning and what Jesus is saying to us today is he's going to give us in this passage those things that are true of you, that are true of us, when God makes his home with us. So that's what we want to walk through this morning. We're going to see four things that are true of us when God makes his home with us. And, and the first one is this. When God makes his home with us, love replaces obligation. When God makes us home with us, love replaces obligation. What do I mean by that? That love replaces obligation. Well, you see it here in verse 15, and, and Jesus says it in different ways multiple times throughout this passage and, and going on into John 15, which we'll look at next week. But he says this in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, there's a way of doing something out of duty or out of obligation. You know, when I was growing up in our house, we had these chore charts and lists of things that we shared, whether that was cleaning the bathroom or the kitchen, uh, doing the dishes, folding the laundry, right? We had these things that we would help out with around the house. And I, I wish I could tell you this morning that as a kid, I just did those things so cheerfully out of just a deep sense of love for my parents and my sisters and wanting to make our house just a, a beautiful place that functions so well. But I mean, really, it was out of a sense of I've got to get this done so I can go do what I want to do, or at least to avoid the consequences of not doing it, right? It was a sense of duty, of obligation. There wasn't a sense of deep joy that, that underpinned this, the doing of these chores. But you know, when I got married, I fell in love with this beautiful woman, we got married, and we began to share a home together, and we had all these same chores to do. But, but I found myself with a new motivation for doing those same things. It wasn't that the tasks got easier. It wasn't that the, 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 all of a sudden, you know, doing the dishes was so, was so much more enjoyable as an act in of itself. But the person that I was doing it with, the person that I was doing it for to serve, there were, the motivation was completely different. A, a sense of love for this person, of joy to be with them, to serve them. And, and Jesus is saying that when he comes to live with us, we find that obligation is replaced by love, that the, the motivation is no longer just duty, but love. The driving force has changed. And, you know, philosophers and theologians for centuries have noticed that we become what we love. That even more than the ideas that we believe or the propositions that we memorize, our desires, our affections, what we long for, what we love, shape who we become. And James K. A. Smith uh, is one of those philosophers, one of those theologians. He has a, a wonderful little book called You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. It's a prime example of this. And here's the thing, love and desire is cultivated in practice and habit, that we actually shape by repetition over and over again what it is that we love, adopting Jesus' practices, obeying him in sort of faith, that as we do these things over and over and over again, that we will become more and more like him. So James K. Smith writes this. He says, virtue formation takes practice, and there is no practice that isn't repetitive. Isn't that true? All practice is repetitive. 
We willingly embrace repetition as a good in all kinds of other sectors of life to hone our golf swing or our piano prowess or our mathematical abilities, for example. And if the sovereign Lord has created us as creatures of habit, why should we think repetition is amicable, is, is damaging to our spiritual growth? Because so much of, of our spiritual habit and practice is repetitious, right? Like every Sunday we come to this room and we sing songs and we hear a message and we respond with more singing and we take communion or every morning we wake up and we say a prayer and we read a passage of scripture or we open the formed life or we do a little routine or, or liturgy or set of prayers as we drive to work or whatever it is. And it's the, the repetition can often feel like, is this, is this really changing me? But the practice is essential. Now, when we hear Jesus say something like this, if you love me, you will keep your commands. I think, for some of us, and myself included, it can, there's part of us that maybe feels uncomfortable with that or has a question about that. Like, is Jesus' acceptance of me based on whether or not I love him and obey him? Is Jesus just interested in getting me to keep the rules is almost his tone in this kind of that of an, of an unhealthy spouse or, or parent who sort of manipulative says, well, if you really cared about me, if you actually loved me, you would do what I like or you would do what I want. I guess you're not, I guess you don't really care about me if you don't do these things. And, and this couldn't be the f- further from the truth because as Jesus is saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's out of a response for the incredible love that he has already showed to us. His love for us has always come first, that that he loved you and sacrificed for you and gave himself for you before before you were ever born, before you ever knew his name, before you ever wanted anything to do with him. He already loved you. Just listen to these passages. This is the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 says this, but God proves his love, his own love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still actively rejecting God, he died for us out of love. And then John, who's recording these words that we're reading in the Gospel of John, he later writes a letter called John. He says this, God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then look at this in verse 10. He says, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus loved you enough, again, to die for you, to give his life for you, before you ever did anything for him, before you ever loved him. The gospel is not, I love Jesus and do what he says so that he will accept me and love me. That is not the gospel. The gospel says, I am already loved beyond what I can even possibly imagine by Jesus that now I I get to respond in love and obedience to the one who has rescued me and loves me and has given his life for me. And another way you could say this point of love replaces obligation is that uh, have to is replaced by get to. I I don't have to obey Jesus. Now I, I, I get to obey him. I get to follow him get to love him through doing what he says. And and guess what? John tells us, again, later in the the letter of 1 John, that Jesus' commands, the things that he's calling us to do, that they're not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Uh, Look at this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. He says, for this is the love of God, 
that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, burdensome does not mean effortless. <laughs> not burdensome does not mean effortless. I was thinking about this week, even when you think about Adam and Eve, the first humans, and God places them in this garden that's in Eden, and he gives them this, this command to be fruitful and multiply and to care for and keep the garden and to cultivate this world and all that. That required a lot of effort. It required a lot of effort on their part to do that work. But it wasn't until they rebelled against God and are exiled from the garden that that becomes toil. It becomes burdensome, right? That this, this becomes painful, that there's sweat and pain and toil in carrying this out. And the reality is that we were never meant, even in the garden, to live this human life in our mere human limitations. We were always meant to be empowered by God and His Spirit in living this life out. So not being burdensome doesn't mean there is no effort, but the toil is gone. And this leads us to our next point, that it's true, yes, when God comes to make his home in us, love replaces obligation, but it's also true that when God makes his home in us as his people, that he is always there to help us. That help is always there. When he makes his home with us, help is always there. And whether, again, motivated by duty or love, you will never be able to love and obey and enjoy Jesus without help, and help is always there. And, and that help does not come in the form of some kind of abstract power. Um, it comes in the form of a person who has a name, a divine person that Jesus introduces to us here. You look at verse 16, and you see it. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. And friends, we need a helper. I mean, do you get this? We need a helper. It, it makes me think of, of my kids after a long day of, of playing, whether that's in the living room or uh, in, in the basement, and they've gotten out all kinds of, they've gotten out the, the Playmobil stuff, they've gotten out the Lincoln Logs and the Barbies and the Legos, and it was really easy to make that mess, and it's been a wonderful day of imagining, but now it's the end of the day, and it's time to start cleaning up, and it just seems completely overwhelming at that point. Like, it feels overwhelming to me, and for them in their young age, they just look at this room, and they don't even know where to begin, and they're like, how can we possibly? It was easy to make the mess, but we don't know how we're going to get all this stuff back to where it belongs. Now, part of that is a motivation problem, I, I acknowledge for them. But also, I think part of it, we don't, I'm going to use this language, but I think part of it's like a wisdom and a hope problem. They look at this, they don't know where to start, and they don't have any hope that it can actually be, they need help. And so we help them. We're not going to do it for them. We're not going to clean up the mess for them. But we say, okay, what if we started with the Legos? Let's work on that together. And here, and I'll come alongside, let's do it together. We'll start filling that basket together. And, and then what if next we did the Barbies and, and then we collected those things? We're there helping in the midst of the mess. And friends, all of us, have places in our life that are a mess. 
And, and we're not gonna get out of it on our own. We need help. We need someone to give us wisdom and motivation and hope and, and empowerment to actually move out of that mess into the places of wholeness and hope and beauty that Jesus is calling us to. And I don't know where or what that mess is for you this morning. I mean, maybe it's a, a toxic relationship that, that is no longer, you know, it's not following God's design for sexuality. It's just, it's, a, it's codependent. It's, I don't know what, maybe it's, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe uh, it's a lifestyle of consumption that's just unsustainable that is driving you deeper into debt and, and misery. And maybe it's, it's numbing with, with food or drink or pills or Netflix or YouTube to escape just the reality of the mess to try to block it out. Maybe it's an over-identification with your career and your calling, and so you're, you're either at work too much, or even when you're home, you're not really present to the people, your friends, your family that you're with, because your, your mind and your heart are still there working on problems and turning over things in your mind and looking at your phone, and it's ruining the people around you. Again, I don't know what the mess is for you, but I do know that you are not going to escape on your own. You need a helper. You need a helper. And Jesus is, th- is the first helper who is there for you. And he's promising here, his disciples, that he's sending them another helper who will not only just be with them, but will actually be in them. And, and there's a wide variety of translations of this word helper. Some versions say counselor. Some versions say advocate. Others go with friend or intercessor or champion or advisor. And, and Jesus is certainly all of those things for us and continues to be all of those things for us. You read in Romans chapter 8 or through the book of Hebrews and you see Jesus is interceding for us. He is advocating for us. And yet there is a, a new thing happening in this moment where another helper is coming to them. And Jesus calls this helper the spirit of truth. He's the third person of the Trinity. You have Father, the Son who is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. And he's always with us to help us, to help us remember Jesus' teaching He's there to provide comfort and encouragement and wisdom, specifically to guide us into all truth. And just as the truth isn't merely an idea that you know, Jesus has himself identified in John 14, 6, we looked at this last week, that he is the truth. He is the person of truth. That the Holy Spirit is the one who, in theologian J.I. Packer put it this way, I love this picture, he says that the Holy Spirit has this floodlight ministry that the Spirit is constantly shining light on Jesus and pointing us to him showing us how to obey, giving us the power to obey, and to delight in obeying Jesus. The reason that love is no longer an obligation when God comes to make his home with you is that you do have the Spirit who's empowering you so that it's no longer a have to, but a get to. Uh, And in his uh, book called Open to the Spirit, uh, the subtitle is God in us, God with us, and God transforming in us. Scott McKnight suggests praying this prayer. And I, I've written this out on an index card. I use it a lot. It just says simply, Lord, I am open to the Holy Spirit. Come to me. Dwell in me. Speak to me so that I may become more like Jesus. Lord, give me the courage to be open. I am open. Come, Holy Spirit. And maybe you make a practice of praying something like that. Simply just, I'm open to the Spirit. Lord, give me the courage to be open. Help me to listen to His voice, to His leading, to His nudges. 
And as the Spirit helps you, you will find yourself with, with a hunger for the Scriptures. One sign that the Spirit is at work in your life is that, that you long to read these words, to, to spend time with other followers of Jesus, to be encouraged in community. You want to come on Sunday. You want to gather at your community group because this is a place where you're encouraged in this life that you find yourself uh, doing the right thing. When you have the Spirit's guidance in wisdom and you're listening to His voice, you will find yourself doing the right thing even when it costs you or even when you're uncertain of the outcome. You'll find yourself sacrificing your own preferences for the sake of others. You'll find yourself, in short, gradually, slowly, with much effort and failure and practice and intention, becoming more like Jesus, who has promised the Spirit to you to empower you to love and obey and enjoy Him. And that takes us to the next thing that's true of us when God makes His home in us and that is that when God makes his home with us, he is always home. When God comes and makes his home with you, he is always home. Jesus, friends, is not an absentee landlord who purchases your life and then leaves you alone to decay and to rot and to suffer alone. No, when he has come, when he comes to live in you, he's always home. He never leaves. He'll never forsake you. He is always there. Listen to this in verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And Teresa of Avila is a Spanish nun who lived in the mid-1500s. She, she captures this reality so beautifully. Um, and you know, she was great. She's a saint in the Catholic Church. I mean, she was known as this great spiritual person who had a, a deep relationship with Jesus. And yet she had gone through this season of, of spiritual dryness, of, of not experiencing Jesus like she had once had. And, and I think a lot of us who follow Jesus will go through those seasons, even those like St. Teresa who have had this incredible journey with him. And as she was reflecting back on that season, she wrote these words. She said, If I had understood, as I do now, that in this little palace of my soul dwelt so great a king, I would not left him alone so often. But what a marvelous thing that he who would fill a thousand worlds and many more with his grandeur would enclose himself in something so small. Since he is Lord, he is free to do what he wants. And since he loves us, he adapts himself to our size. I mean, it's stunning, isn't it? I love that language of the little palace of our souls. She says, if I had known that he was there, I would not have left him alone so often. She recognized that he's, uh, he's always been home. He's always dwelt in that palace of my soul. I, I just was neglecting him. I, I wasn't present to him. He adapts himself to our size. And friends, he's always home. He's always home. Again, Jesus couldn't have said it any plainer that he does in verse 20. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus won't abandon you. 
He won't move out. He will never leave you. Even if you leave him alone, he won't leave. He waits for you. The light is always on. And I, I don't know all of the stories in this room and what your relationship to Jesus has looked like across your life. Maybe there have been seasons when you, you were a kid and you grew up in church or youth group or college and you were really close to him and, and things happened and you walked away or you just haven't been present. Like Teresa, you so often left him alone in the palace of your life, of your soul. But you find yourself here this morning, and I just want you to know this, maybe this is the moment for you to know that he has never left you. He is always with you. He's waiting for you to come to him. And he wants to welcome, <laughs> he wants to welcome you back home. Or, or maybe you've never invited him in. And maybe today, make today the day that you trust Jesus' promise, surrender yourself to him. And if I want you to know this morning, if you sense even the slightest sort of tug or nudge toward that today, know that that's not me. That's not the, the music or the stained glass that's just moving your emotions away. That is the spirit of the living God who's drawing you to himself, who wants to come and make his home in you, who wants to give you new life. Don't ignore that nudge. And when he makes his home in you, he'll never leave. He'll never abandon you. He's always home. So when God makes his home in you, love replaces obligation. Help is always there. He is always home. And one last thing, that when he makes his home with us, that peace begins to triumph over worry. Peace begins to triumph over worry. Uh, this is so key. And Jesus begins his kind of chapter 14, this, this part of his farewell speech to his followers, and he ends it the same way with this call to, to not be worried, to not be troubled. Verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Neither let them be afraid. When God makes his home in you, his peace begins to win the battle with worry. Now, not overnight, and I'm comforted by the reality that this word of when Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled, that he later on, even as he's facing the cross and praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, will say, my, my, my heart is troubled about this. Jesus knows what it is to experience trouble, to be troubled as you look towards suffering. But his peace triumphs over worry. Australian pastor and cultural commentator Mark Sayers has spent a lot of time thinking about the world that we live in and the, the anxiety that pervades it. And he makes this observation. He says, we create these strongholds as human beings to try to overcome anxiety and worry and find security. He says, strongholds form when humans seek out or build protective structures to find safety, security, and prosperity in threatening, chaotic, and unpredictable environments. And that makes sense, right? That's the most natural thing in the world for us as human beings. When we look at an unpredictable, unsafe, chaotic world that we want to find places of security, prosperity, and safety. So we run to or we build strongholds. But then after making that observation, he drops this bomb. He says, strongholds are things we build to protect ourselves from anxiety, but they can hinder God's work. 
There are things we build to protect ourselves from anxiety, but they can hinder God's work. Those strongholds that we build, I think that's what Jesus is talking about. That's the peace that the world gives. That's the peace that the world gives. We, we look at the, at the chaos, and so we want to find economic systems or our military power that will, will make us feel safe and secure and prosperous. But oftentimes, those very things that we look to for that safety and security are disrupting or inhibiting the work that God wants to do us individually and together as a church in obeying Him. So I, I don't know what maybe some of those strongholds are in your life that actually keep it, they seem like peace, but they're pieces the world gives. They're not stable. They can't deliver. Jesus offers a different kind of peace. Because here's the crazy logic of the gospel. In order for Jesus, for God to come and make his home in us, to give us that peace, God gave up everything. The Father sent his only son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that we were supposed to live and to die the sacrificial death that we deserve to die. And the Bible talks about this, this moment of what happened on the cross with a number of different metaphors and in a lot of different ways. But one of the metaphors is the metaphor of ransom. It's a financial metaphor of Jesus buying us back of a purchase. It's a price. What God is doing is paying for you. You were bought with a price, the Apostle Paul will say. He's buying us back from sin. And so, stay with me here as we go through, kind of with this metaphor that we've been talking about, this, of the home, of we are a home, that God has to, to buy you. He has to buy the house to live in you. And the price of purchasing this house, it's astronomically high because the divide between our rebellion, our sin, our rejection of him and his holiness and his goodness and his purity is so wide that only his son's life can pay for it. And the creator and sustainer of all things has nothing more precious, more priceless to give than his son, than his very self. That's precisely what he does to purchase the opportunity to live in you. But like everything else with God's grace, the math is really bad because he buys us at this incredibly high price. He couldn't possibly pay more for us. And yet what he buys is a total fixer-upper, right? It's a total money pit. He way overpays for the property that he is buying. We're sticking with this metaphor, right? That's us. You and I are the absolute money pit. We're falling apart. But God doesn't just move in and rearrange the furniture, though. He redoes the whole thing. And I can't put this any better than C.S. Lewis does in his book, Mere Christianity, which helped me to fall in love with, with Jesus as a high school student. Lewis says this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew those jobs needed doing. And so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing up a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live at it himself. 
And again, for most of us, when we're finally willing to love Jesus enough to obey him and accept his help, when we let him move in, uh, we think he's just going to sort of remodel the kitchen a little bit, install some new fixtures, update the color scheme, straighten the retaining wall, repair the gutters, whatever it might be. We thought he just wanted to update an outdated house. But he's making a place where he's going to come and live. And he intends not just to make you livable, but to make you beautiful. A place that is worthy of the glory of his presence. And he's content with nothing less than that. If you want to live, want him to live in you, you've got to hand him the deed. And say, it's yours. It's all yours. We have to submit to his plans for us to make us into something totally new, even when it's painful. And sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. You may find yourself following Jesus and being like, actually, this is, my life is harder now than when I I was just kind of doing my own thing. In fact, Lewis says that no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. It's the same way with a lot of remodeling projects, right? The room looks a lot worse before it gets better as you do the deconstruction and there's dust and the dirt. And sometimes that's the way it is in our Christian lives. Is that things get messier before they get better. But when we let him in, he will never leave. And so this morning, before we come to the communion table, I just want us to respond to Jesus' promise by singing and declaring the truth to one another that we have never walked alone.